Good morning, West Park. If you will, please turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 9, the, the verse that was read for us earlier, Isaiah 9, 6. Before we get into that, I do want to mention this is a special uh, morning here at West Park. So it was actually 36 years ago this week that Pastor Sam and Sue came on staff here at West Park. And so just wanted to acknowledge that. Yeah, give him a, a round of applause. Sue, Sue couldn't be with us. Um, you know, 36 years is a long time. I was six years from being born. Uh, none of our band was born. Olivia was 20 years from being born, I think. Um, so 36 years is a long time, but it's especially a long time to be faithful, right, to a, one church, to one group of people day in and day out. So thank you, Pastor Sam, for your faithfulness. I can't imagine it because I haven't been alive that long. So it's, it's amazing. But all right, so Isaiah chapter 9 Verse 6. And so let me just start by asking you this. How are you doing? How are you doing? And, and I, I say that a lot. That's just how I greet people. How are you doing? But I'm actually asking, how are you doing? If you're looking back over 2022, going into 2023, how would you say that you're doing? If you've ever been to a long-distance race, a 5K, a half marathon, a marathon, you know there are two different ways to finish. There's some people, the, the Mike Dotsons of the world, who finish, and they're looking good, right? Like when they cross that finish line, they, they still look good. They're running faster than when they started. It just looks like they haven't even done anything. 13.1 miles, 26.2 miles, you would never know it. You would think they were just walking around Westtown Mall. There's no, those people. And then there's the people like me, right? When they finish, they look like they are walking in quicksand that's up to about their chest, right? Mike, when he finishes, there, there's, there's a peacefulness to his face, right? He's, he's just at peace. When I finish, there's no peace. When Greg finishes, there's no peace. We just did this a couple weeks ago. There's no peace. We're dying, right? We are struggling. We're stumbling to the finish. So let me ask, which one are you as we come into the Advent season? Are you just feeling good, right? It's been a good year. Praise God. Right? Glory, that's what we just sang. I don't know if you know what that means, all the Latin we just sang. Glory to God in the highest. Maybe that's where you are right now. Or maybe you're like me as a runner. You're just stumbling in. Stumbling in. Just trying to cross that finish line. Maybe it's because of an illness. Right? Maybe it's because of anxiety that wakes you up at 4 a.m. and doesn't let you go back to sleep. Maybe it's because of a kid that wakes you up at 4 a.m. and doesn't let you go back to sleep. That's, that's more my problem. Maybe it's something a loved one is going through. Maybe it's just the result of a bunch of things over 12 months. It just feels like this year has picked you up over and over and over again and body slammed you to the mat. If any of that describes you, or if any of it has ever described you, or if any of it could ever describe you, which I think is all of us, I want to point out that Isaiah 9, 6, we've, we've read it, we sang it, right? The truth in this passage has something for us this morning. If you are stumbling across the finish line, Isaiah 9, 6 has something for you. And I feel like I have to do extra work to make this clear because Isaiah 9, 6 at this point, it's kind of become cliche, hasn't it? We read it every Christmas. We put it on Christmas cards every Christmas. We see these names, but have you ever really thought about what they mean? This verse can almost seem frothy, like it doesn't have any substance at all, like it's only good for a Christmas card. But I want to show you this morning 
that couldn't be further from the truth. The context of this verse tells us that it is to a people walking in darkness. So if you are walking in darkness, this verse is truly a shining beacon in the dark. Today we're talking about peace. Peace, that's, that's, what, that's our subject today, peace. Well, peace can be found in the truth of Isaiah 9-6. So let's look at it. If you'll make sure to turn there with me, Isaiah 9-6. The first thing you're going to see here, if you look just there at the, the beginning, the first thing you're going to see is that Isaiah 9-6 is a birth announcement. It's a birth announcement. It says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And birth announcements are a big deal, right? Especially in our age with Instagram and Facebook. If you've had a kid in the last 15 years, you know getting that birth announcement right is key. Okay? So the baby comes. You have to take some time to enjoy the baby, right? But after a little while, you're thinking, how are we going to announce this to the world? You've got to make it look good, right? You've got to say just the right words. And you've got to take that family picture which is actually really unfair to the mom. Have you ever thought about this, right? It's literally like taking someone, I just talked about running a marathon. It's like taking someone who's just run an ultra marathon and saying, let's take a picture of you and you're going to keep this the rest of your life, right? But somehow Allie always looked better than me. But in my defense, I did have to sleep on that little couch that they have. Over there. It's, just, it's awful, right? Like that's hard too. But you have to take that picture. You have to take that picture and you have to send it out. You have to get the birth announcement right. Well, Isaiah here, if you know your Bible, you may know this. Isaiah is taking the birth announcement to the next level. He's actually giving the birth announcement hundreds of years before the baby is actually born, right? Which is pretty crazy. Hundreds of years before Jesus is actually born. This is about Jesus, so it's written way before his coming. That's why we always go here at Christmas. So this is a birth announcement about Jesus. And notice another interesting thing here about this announcement is that the baby has four names. Four names. It says, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, when our eighth-month-old Haddon was born, um, he actually had four names. Uh, we couldn't decide. So when he was born, he had four names. So for about three hours, he was Haddon Rise Cross Cade Bishop. We didn't know. I just gave it to Allie to, to choose. So now he's Haddon Rise. But we did eventually settle before the announcement. But here's the interesting thing. Isaiah doesn't need to settle, right? He doesn't need to settle. The baby, we know his name will be Jesus. But all of these names describe him perfectly, don't they? That's what Avery just sang. His name say it all. Isaiah doesn't have to settle because each of these names tell us so much about Jesus. And so here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I just want to walk through them. Okay? You've heard these over and over again. You probably have them memorized. But let's just talk about what each one actually means. So starting with the first one, wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. When I say the word counselor, does anyone come to mind? Does anyone come to mind? I mean, honestly, for me, it's Al Cage. Right? I mean, Al, Al leads the counseling ministry here at our church. What a blessing that is, right? Al is a, is a counselor and a really good one, right? And so maybe when you think counselor, you think of our counseling center here at the church, which I would encourage you if you need it, take advantage of it. What an amazing gift. Maybe you think of a counselor. Maybe you think of a, a trained counselor, someone that, that you are seeing who's trained in counseling. Well, yeah, that makes total sense, right? That's what a counselor is. 
But maybe it's not someone who's actually trained in counseling. Maybe it's someone else who comes to mind when I say counselor. A friend, a family member, a brother or sister. That person that when you need advice, when you need counsel, that is the person that you're calling. They are in in your favorites on your phone so that you can call them at a moment's notice and you know that they'll answer. And you know that they will give you the counsel that you need. Either one of those is totally legitimate because what is a counselor? A counselor is a wise person who listens to you, understands you, sympathizes with you, loves you. And if they are a good counselor, then they're going to give you wise counsel based on your situation. They're going to listen to your situation and they are going to speak in a way, they're going to give you counsel in a way that holds up a mirror on your blind spot so that you can begin to see them. A counselor helps you to see reality. That's why having counselors in our life, whether professional or friends, that's why it's so essential because we all have blind spots. None of us fully understands ourselves, do we? I don't understand myself. John Newton put it this way. He said, I am a riddle to myself a heap of inconsistence. I feel that, don't you? I want to understand myself better, but I am a heap of inconsistence. But what a counselor does is they step in with wisdom and they help me understand the riddle that is myself a little bit better. That's a counselor. Here's another thing they do. A good counselor helps us to navigate life with wisdom. Think about a financial counselor, right? What do they do? They sit down, they look at your finances, they counsel you on the wise ways to handle all your assets. That's what a counselor does. They help you understand yourself and they help you understand the world. And here Jesus is described as a wonderful counselor. Isn't that Jesus? A wonderful counselor. Now let me ask, if I asked you, Christian, describe Jesus to me. What words would you use? Would smart be in there? Would wise be in there? Would brilliant be in there? We often don't go there with Jesus, do we? Smart, wise, brilliant. But he is that. He is a smart, wise, brilliant counselor. He is the wisest, smartest, most brilliant person ever to live. Jesus is wisdom covered in flesh. Do you know this? When you think of Jesus, Jesus is wisdom covered in flesh. No one knows you like Jesus knows you. And no one knows the world like Jesus knows the world. No one knows how to navigate life better than Jesus. There is a lot of wisdom that can be found in our day in podcasts and TED Talks and books. Praise God for that. But you will never find better wisdom than Jesus himself, right? Oftentimes we think, oh, he just has nothing to say to all this stuff, right? Okay, he has this kind of place over here, but that wisdom is found in the TED Talk. No, it's found in Jesus. When you are reading the words of Jesus, you are getting the best wisdom there is, So please hear this, because it is really easy as Christians to begin to think of Jesus just as the Messiah, 
who was born as a baby, grew up, did some miracles, and then died for our sins and rose again. And he did all those things. Amen. We'll talk about that in a second. But he is wise. Okay? He is wise. It's easy to think, well, yeah, he taught. But what does he have to say to me in IT? What does he have for me as a teacher? What does he have for me in finance? What does he have for me living in 2022 with iPhones and Netflix and all this stuff that we have to deal with? What does he have for me? What kind of wisdom does he have for me? He's the wisest person ever to live. Okay? He has the best word on everything. The best word on everything. He's not just good. He's not just nice. He's brilliant. He's a counselor. But we can't stop there. He's not just a counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. If you read this in the Hebrew, literally, it says a wonder of a counselor, a marvel of a counselor. This is Jesus. Now, that word wonderful has been weakened in our day. And I am the prime suspect, okay? I use wonderful, awesome, amazing to describe everything from my coffee to the God of the universe, right? Just across the board. I love those big words. But Jesus is a wonderful counselor. That word, that word wonder in the Hebrew, when it's used, the context is typically about divine, interven- divine intervention. It's about God stepping in and saving. That's what that word wonder is usually used for. Here's an example. Exodus 3.20, God tells Moses, he says, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders. That's the same word, the wonders that I will do to it. After that, he, being Pharaoh, will let you go. That's the same word, right? And it's used the same way all over the Old Testament. It's about God intervening and saving his people. Isn't that the kind of counselor that Jesus is? So I just said, don't think of him only as a savior, but don't think of him only as a teacher either. He is a teacher who intervenes to save us. I mean, imagine, so so picture this in your head. Imagine you're at the beach, and there's this lifeguard who's really taking his job seriously. And he's just walking up and down the beach all day, counseling people on how to swim safely in the ocean, telling them the places to avoid. Don't go out too far. Watch for this jellyfish. Watch over there. Watch it dips there, giving them counsel on how to swim, on how to swim in the ocean. And then picture Johnny gets a little brave, goes a little far out, can't swim anymore, and he starts drowning. And he makes eye contact with that lifeguard on shore and says, help me, I'm drowning. And the lifeguard sits down and says, I already told you how to do this. And he gets out his snack and just just ignores Johnny. That's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. He comes and he tells us how to live. He gives us the best wisdom possible. But then he steps in. He steps in. He steps in and does what we can't do. He isn't just a brilliant counselor. He's a saving counselor. One author put it this way. He said, Jesus doesn't just say, grow up, stop being a baby, get your act together. Instead, Jesus says, I'm going to become a baby. And then I'm going to live the perfect life you can't live. And I'm going to die the death that you deserve. He's not just a wise counselor. He's a counselor that does what you can't do. It's like if a financial counselor not only told you how to get out of crippling debt, but offered to pay the debt for you. That's our wonderful counselor. That's him. 
That's who he is. But he isn't just that. Look at number two. He's also mighty God. Mighty God. So Jesus is God. Jesus, this baby that we have in our little nativity scenes, is the transcendent creator of the universe. He is mighty God, a powerful God, a triumphant God. So just think for a second. Who's the most powerful human being you can think of? Who comes to mind? The most powerful human being you can think of. Well, Forbes puts out a list okay, that they keep updated. Here, here's the people who are, who are kind of at the top of their list. Xi Jinping, Putin, Merkel, Trump, Biden, Gates, Zuckerberg, Musk, right? We think power, right? Powerful people, powerful men and women. Compared to our mighty God, they are like an ant crawling on the shoulder of an elephant, right? That is them compared to our mighty God. Psalm 2 tells us that when the world leaders get together for their summits and they take their picture and they strategize and they, they, they politic, you know what God is doing? He's laughing. <laughs> He's laughing at the plans they're making. They walk around thinking they are powerful. They walk around with a swagger thinking they got it all. And God just laughs. That is our mighty God. The government is on his shoulder. That's what our passage tells us. The government is on his shoulder. I was trying this week to think of a, an illustration to describe that. And sometimes, like, one just, God just gives it to you. It just happens right in front of you. So I had a weird one this week. But here's my illustration. So sometimes I study at the Oak Ridge Starbucks, and there's this, this guy who walks in who gets a lot of attention every time. I've seen him in there five, six, seven times. Every time he walks in, he gets a lot of attention. And it's not because of the guy. It's because of what he has on his shoulder. Okay, so maybe you've seen this before. So this is, have you seen this? Okay, so this is Sinan, the, the squirrel. Okay, and so this guy always walks in, and he walks in the Starbucks, and everyone freaks out because he has a squirrel on his shoulder, right? It's crazy. But this squirrel isn't just anyone. This squirrel, his name is Sinan, he actually has 122,000 followers on TikTok. Sorry, 122,000. He's hanging out with Hendon Hooker. Okay, these are the type of people he hangs out with. Okay, Sinan the squirrel is a big deal. But here's my point. As I was thinking, this, and this is maybe dumb, but it felt really good as I was sitting in Starbucks seeing this happen. If that squirrel walked into Starbucks without the guy whose shoulder he's on, what would people do? You'd have a Christmas vacation situation, right? Like Everyone would be freaking out. Everyone would be grabbing the brooms, trying to get this thing out, because at that point, he's just a pest who snuck into the Starbucks. His legitimacy comes from the person whose shoulder he's on. Okay? He may have 122,000 followers on TikTok, but he's not running the show. Who's running the show? The guy with the shoulder, right? The guy whose shoulder he's sitting on. So who's running the show? When we think politics, when we think power, when we all these things that we get so into, who is running the show? Is it the Democrats? No. Is it the Republicans? No. Is it whoever's controlling Congress? No. Jesus is running the show, right? He is mighty God. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says as much. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What is the president or a king to the one who created it all? Nothing, right? Nothing. Now here, so that's mighty God. Here's what makes Christmas so crazy. 
thought about this. Here's what makes Christmas so crazy. Many children have grown up to become kings or presidents or rulers, but only one king has ever become a child, and it's our God. It's our God. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. At Christmas, we celebrate the fact that mighty God became a little crying baby. And not only that, he became a little crying baby from a family that everyone looked down upon. A family that was from Nazareth, where everyone says, can anything good come from there? Right? He comes to that. He comes to a mother who is a teenage unwed peasant girl. You thought about Mary, right? She would have been looked down upon her entire life. And her son would have been too. But that's who he comes to. And when he's born, he's not put in an amazing bed. He's laid in a manger. This is mighty, think, okay, this is so familiar to us, we can almost not see it anymore. This is mighty God, Okay? Mighty, whatever you can think of, how that transcendent God of the universe who created it all, mighty God was laying in a manger. But this child had none of the marks of greatness that society looks for, and yet he is still mighty God. If you're a Narnia fan, maybe you remember this. Lucy nails it in one of the books when she says this. Once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. It's bigger than our whole world. So what's the point? What's the point? I'll give you two. First of all, first of all, the mighty God becoming a baby teaches us what true greatness is. If true greatness is being from the best family, going to the best school, having the most money, being the best looking, or rising up in your company, then Jesus wasn't great. Does anyone want to claim that? Okay. That Jesus wasn't great? If that's the markers of greatness, then Jesus wasn't great. In America, we may say we're against this, but it's all, it's in the air we breathe. As Americans, we are all about upward mobility. But Jesus' life was actually about downward mobility. Mighty God humbling himself to be the suffering servant, washing the dirty feet of his disciples, dying on a tree that he made. So true greatness, if, if that's what you're striving after, is true greatness. True greatness is not found in being respected by others. It's not found in making a name for ourselves. It's found in the example of Jesus, humbling ourselves and pouring our lives out for others. True greatness is actually found in downward mobility. That's countercultural, isn't it? It's found in downward mobility. Here's the second thing. Jesus' downward mobility is why he can be the wonderful counselor that I talked about earlier. Think about this. Think about counsel. Who gives the best counsel? Someone who's been where you've been, right? Who gives the best counsel? Someone who's gone through what you're going through. That's who gives you the best counsel. Mighty God became a baby. He became a baby that woke up in the middle of the night because he was teething or he had gas, right? Or he was hungry. Those are the three things that seemed to wake our baby up. So I assumed that that happened to him. And then he became a three-year-old. He's like our three-year-old. He just randomly walked into door frames and just fell for no reason 
as he tried to figure out, you know, this life thing, how to navigate it. Then he became a teenager, and he probably had acne, right? Probably dealt with acne, hit puberty, probably smelled bad, okay? Because he lived in a time without Axe body spray, so he couldn't even put that on, right? Probably smelled bad. And then he became an, became an adult, and he had to do the whole, whole adulting thing that we have to do, right? All the things that come with that. He had to deal with illness, lacking money, the death of a close family member or friend, betrayal by those close to him, being mocked and made fun of and looked down upon. Our God experienced all that. Have you thought about that? Whatever you're going through, our God experienced that. I had this, this moment with a, with a friend who pretty, you know, in the last few years lost his dad. And this was a teaching moment for me because he's handling it much better than I would. And I remember he, he just, he's, he's sad. He's, been, he's still grieving to this day, just like he always will be. But he said this thing. He said, you know, Jesus has been there, right? He lost his earthly father, okay? You know, you know like when, when he's dying on the cross, Joseph's not there. We assume that Joseph has died at some point. Jesus buried his earthly father. And so my friend says, hey, Jesus has been there. <laughs> He's not looking at what I'm going through. And he, it's, it's not that he doesn't understand it. He understands it fully, right? That's our God. Whatever you're going through, Jesus has been there. He is the truest friend. Listen to this. Dane Ortland summarizes it this way. He says, consider your own life. When the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, when it feels like life is passing us by, when it seems that our one shot at significance has slipped through our fingers, when we can't sort out our emotions, when the longtime friend lets us down, when a family member betrays us, when we feel deeply misunderstood, when we are laughed at by the impressive, in short, when the fallenness of the world comes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel, there Right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like and sits close to us, embraces us, with us, solidarity. That's Jesus. Whatever you're going through, that's Jesus sitting with you in solidarity. But not only do we have a friend, we also have someone who's like a father who cares for his sons and daughters. And so that's number three. Everlasting Father, Everlasting Father. Jesus, this baby who is to come, is described as Everlasting Father. Now, really quick, this is not a Trinitarian statement about Jesus, right? That can get confusing because Jesus in the Trinity, we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is not the Father, right? He is the Son. But what this is getting at, what Isaiah is getting at, is he's making a different point about him. It's making the point that Jesus cares for us, and that we have access to him. Earlier, I had you uh, think about the most powerful person you can think of. Here's another question for you to think about. Who's the most powerful person you've ever met? Who's the most powerful person you've ever been in the same room as? For me, this is really easy. Okay? When I was in fourth grade, me and my dad got to meet the president of the United States. So at that point, it was George W. Bush, and we got to meet him. And this is 20 years ago. But there's something that I, I remember, and I, I texted my dad because I remembered this so vividly. I want to make sure I'm remembering it right, and he confirmed it. The process to be able to meet the president 
was unbelievably thorough. The security we had to go through. Multiple background checks. They did a background check on me, and I was 10, okay? They background checked me. Calling references. We had to go through multiple medical, metal detectors. We stood in this winding line for what seemed like hours, and there are secret service agents looking at you nonstop. I gave the, the, the president a letter that I wrote to him, and it had to go to multiple different secret service agents to check it and make sure there was nothing on it before I could hand it to the president. Access is extremely difficult with someone that power, powerful, and rightfully so, right? It's hard to get to someone that powerful. But think about this. Who doesn't have to go through all that to see the president? His kids, right? The ones who call him father don't have to go through that. If you call the president father, you can walk into his room at 3 a.m. and ask for a glass of milk, and it's totally fine. That's access. Complete and total access. And who is God to us? Everlasting Father. We have that kind of access. He's much more powerful than the President of the United States, but we can go to him like that. We go to him like that. He doesn't have to do a background check on us. He already knows. (laughs) He knows all the red flags that'll pop up. And yet, what does he do? Lovingly invites us in. That's our God. That's our God. So we have access, and here's the other thing. He is a father who will never let us go. Do you know this? He will never let us go. Have you ever carried a toddler into a swimming pool? You ever done this? Carry a toddler into a swimming pool. What do they do? As you get deeper and deeper and deeper, they grab on as hard as they can right, as tight as they can with their little hands just trying to grab on. But are they holding you? No. They think they are, but you're holding them. You're holding them. If you're walking in here today, I said earlier, if you're limping across the finish line, there are times like that. There are times like that. There are times where life feels like you're on the back of a tube behind a boat on the lake. Can you picture this? And it's just flopping everywhere. Your face is hitting it, right? The water's splashing into your eyes, and you're just trying to hold on for dear life. But here's what you need to know. You're that toddler. (laughs) You're holding on to your everlasting father. But really, who's holding on? It's him. And he will not let you go. If you are walking in here and you just feel like you're walking in darkness, you feel like he's gone silent, you feel like you just don't know where he is, his promises, I got gotcha, you, right? I got gotcha. you. You're like the two-year-old who just sees the deep end and you're grabbing on, but he's got you. He's got you. He is everlasting father. He will never let you go. He is truly Emmanuel, God with us. And then finally, he is the prince of peace. The prince of peace. What does it mean that Jesus is a prince? I have a hard time imagining that. When I think prince, I, I think I think this, this is what comes to mind when I think prince, or this, like another one, or even this, right? This is where I go when I think prince. But none of these actually describe Jesus. Jesus is a prince of peace. What this means actually in the Hebrew, a prince is a warrior. A prince is a warrior. A prince is a commander. A prince is someone who is powerful and triumphant. So we can say that Jesus is a warrior of peace. 
a warrior of peace. That's what he came as. What an amazing way to describe him, a warrior of peace. Let me go to, again, I, I use this all the time, but I, it's too good not to. My favorite, I think this is my favorite passage in Scripture, John 11. John 11, I think I used it a few weeks ago, but John 11, the death of Lazarus. You know that story, the death of Lazarus. And Jesus comes, and I've told you all this before, but Jesus comes, and he's standing. You remember, he, he meets Mary, he meets Martha, he weeps with them. And then in this story, he is standing before this tomb. And in our English translations, most of the time, they say that he was deeply disturbed. That's what he, He's deeply disturbed. And that sounds, okay, whatever, he's deeply disturbed. Here's what that means in the Greek. It's the same word used to describe a war horse before going into battle. Can you picture that? you got two armies coming at each other, and they've just got that horse riled up. Where he is looking at where he's about to run, looking at the war he's about to fight in, and he is so mad that he's snorting. He's snorting angry. So Jesus is standing at the tomb of Lazarus. This is right before the cross. He's about to march into Jerusalem. He is standing at the tomb of his friend. You can picture the scene. There's weeping going on all around him because Lazarus is dead. And it says that he looked at that tomb with war horse anger. He's snorting because of what has happened. He hates death. He hates sin. He hates Satan. He knows this is not the way it's supposed to be. And guess what? He's going to do something about it. He's going to do something about it. But here's why he's the warrior of peace. What do we do in that situation? Go grab the the, the army, right? Go grab your guns. Go grab what you need. Go make war. Jesus makes war, but he does it in a way that we wouldn't expect. Jesus makes war by allowing some Roman soldiers to tear him to shreds and to put a robe on his back and jam a crown of thorns into his skull and mockingly call him king. And he lets them exalt him up as king, but not on a throne. They do it on a cross. And he could have made war, how we think about it. He could have called thousands and thousands of angels. He could have done it, but that's not what he does. He lets them do it. He lets them do it. But don't get me wrong. He is making war, right? He is making war. He is a warrior of peace. And three days later, what does he do? He rises victoriously. Jesus, think think about this. We're talking about peace. Jesus was willing to leave the perfect peace of heaven to come to the sinful world, to be murdered on a criminal's cross so that we can have peace. That's the love he has for us. He did that so we can have peace. Three different kinds of peace. Number one, peace with the Father. We talked about that in Romans 5 a few weeks back. Peace with the Father. We were once his enemies, but through Jesus, we can have peace with him. Peace with others. The good news of the gospel unites people who are sworn enemies, right? It brings us together. And then peace within ourselves. If you want true peace, it's found in Jesus. It is found in Jesus. That is where peace is found.